I'm an alcoholic. My sobriety dates May 12, 1984, and my home group's the Friday Night Beginners Meeting. It meets every single night in Vista, California, and we carry the message to newcomers. And I've been going to that meeting since my very first meeting. I want to thank the host group, and especially Joel and his call on me. I got on that plane last night at 1 o'clock in Los Angeles, and everybody else in California had a great idea. They were going to leave for Labor Day a day before everybody else. <clears throat> Fortunately, everybody had the same idea. Then they put me on a plane in a seat with three other guys a little bit bigger than me, and none of us were very comfortable all the way here. So I got here tired and incomprehensible demoralization and tired. And Joel picked me up, fed me, took me home, and he did a 12-step call on me, put me down to bed, and I, I got a good day's sleep, and I've been fellowshipping with y'all. And uh, it's just like everywhere I've been all over the world, you know, that uh, Alcoholics Anonymous, the Fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous is live and well. And I've been to meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous in jungles where it takes a couple of days to get through in northern Queensland, Australia, and down in Mexico where they, they meet at a little broken down gas station. And in some of the biggest cities in Europe, you know, and it's, it's pretty much the same everywhere I've ever been. You know, I walk in, I say, my name's Kip, and I'm an alcoholic, and I'm home. <sighs> well, here we go. My father's uh, Irish and Sioux, and my mama's Irish and Cherokee. <clears throat> and this is the way it was around my house. Daddy would be coming home and be late, and the neighbors hear that pickup truck coming up the road. They'd be turning off the television sets and getting their lawn chairs and coming outside. <laughs> there was always a lot of excitement there, you know. My mama don't drink, but she sure likes to fight. And uh, my dad don't like to fight, but he likes to drink. And uh, I'd say, Mom, why don't you just let him pass out? She goes, I can't let him get away with that. You know. And, uh, and he'd be, uh, she'd be yelling at him, and he'd be trying to, you know. Pretty soon, she'd go, go ahead, hit me, and all of a sudden, he'd hit her, and uh, and it'd be all over the same thing, just over and over and over now. And I grew up absolutely terrified. You know, um, my family is all uh, very dark. They have dark hair, brown eyes, and dark skin, all my cousins. And uh, the only thing that came out with me and my brother was the Irish, you know. And we, we were real white-skinned, blue-eyed, and blonde hair. And we didn't fit in with the other kids in the family. And uh, I lived in an all-Mexican neighborhood where they didn't speak English. And I didn't fit in there either. And I knew something was really different about me. Me and my brother both knew that. You know, we, we went outside. The Mexicans wanted to beat our ass. We went inside the house. That Indian wanted to beat our ass. And uh, we'd stand in that doorway many times. We were scared to death to go in or out, you know. And, uh, and what happened was is that uh, me and my brother found out something at a very early age. We found out that if we could be crazier than you were, that you would leave us alone. And we became uh, angry. And if you touched one of us, you had to touch both of us. And, and if you touched one of us, you better never go to sleep because you did. We would break in your house and get you, you know, and, uh, and that's the way it was. And after a while, people started leaving the Collins brothers alone because we were nuts. And that worked, you know, that worked. You know, I don't not blame my alcoholism on my, uh, my father. If anything in this world, my father taught me exactly what alcohol will do to a man. 
He taught me what it'll do to a family, what it'll do to a marriage, what it'll do to a career. He was a prime example of what alcohol will do. And I swore to God I was never going to be an alcoholic. Me and my brother, we'd be laying in that bed at night, we slept in the same bed, and, and we'd be waiting for the old man to get home, scared to death, because the later it got, the crazier it was going to be. And, we, and we'd start talking one night. I remember never forget it. And we talked about the kind of men we wanted to be when we grew up, the kind of fathers we were going to be, the kind of husbands we were going to be. And it sure wasn't anything like him. But in about um, sixth grade, the San Diego Unified School District had this great idea. They decided that it was time to start warning all the youngsters about the evils of drugs. And I recognize this is a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous and our singleness of purpose, but I only got one story. And they showed us this film about marijuana. And they tell what it did to you and everything that could happen. And I could hardly wait, you know. <laughs> I just went, wow, I had no idea there was stuff like that in the world. I'd never heard of it. And I asked this friend of mine, Balto, I said, Balto, can you get some of this stuff? And he says, oh, yeah. I said, my dad drinks it, smokes that. I said, well, get some. So he came the next day at school, and I said, Balto, did you get it? He says, yeah. He said, meet me after school. And we went. I met him, and he says, come on, we've got to go get some wine. I go, I why? He says, well, you've got to che drink cheap wine with this stuff. I said, why? And he says, well, I don't know. My dad does. And, uh, and so, <laughs> so we went down this little store, and we each ripped us off a short dog and sweet red port. We went down this canyon. We drank this wine, and we smoked this dope, and... Uh, it was the most magic moment of my life. I doubt if there's anyone here that would understand that, but, uh, <laughs> you know, I, I knew all about these first three steps in a different way long before I ever heard of you people. I knew that my life was unmanageable. I was scared to death of it. I was scared to death of this world. I was terrified of it. I knew I was powerless over it. But I'll tell you, when I smoked that dope, I drank that wine. For the very first time in my life, I felt as good as I knew you people did. And I was a whole person. And I immediately, and with no reservations, and I never looked back, I turned my will and life over to that. When I was 14 years old, my mama found my dope, and uh, she kicked me out of the house. And this was 1964, and uh, I was uh, on the beach in Oceanside, California, and I was reading, and I'd never been anywhere, I'd never done anything, and uh, we're reading in this newspaper about They say, look at this. They got this deal going on up in San Francisco where all these people, all they're doing is getting high, making love, and listening to music. And I was doing two of those things, and I was actively in pursuit in the other one, and uh, I could hardly wait to get up there. I wanted to go check this out. So I got on the freeway. I was 14 years old, and I hitchhiked up to a place called Haight-Ashbury in San Francisco in 1964. And it was to set a pattern of my life for the rest of my life. My dad had always told me if I wanted to do things and I, if I wanted stuff in this world, I had to go to school, I had to obey the rules. I, I don't know why he never did any of it, but he was telling me what I ought to be doing, you know, and, and my father did work hard. He, he surely did. And uh, when I got up there, I didn't know nothing about living in this world, and I hooked up with some people, and they taught me a new way to live. And I found out that if I wanted things in this world, that if I had the right product, I could trade it for just about anybody or anything I wanted. And, uh, 
and it's nothing I'm proud of, and I'm, but my story is my story. I started smuggling drugs when I was 15 years old across the Mexican border, and I, I was arrested when I was 16 with 200 kilos, and I was sentenced in prison in Mexico, La Mesa Federal Prison. And I'm going to tell you this, that La Mesa Federal Prison is not friendly to little white Americans, and it's not a nice place to be, and not nice things happen. And if there's anything in this world that should have taught me, you know, that the way I'm doing things, man, this isn't going to work out, you know. It didn't change my mind. I did my little bit of time there, and I eventually bought my way out of there. My friends did, and uh, I got out of there, and I, and I continued to do what I do. And I got busted again, and I went to prison in, in the United States on my 18th birthday. I've been living with this gal at this time, and, uh, and she was pregnant, and... Um, I did about a year and a half on that little beef, and when I got out, I went to go find that gal, and I, and I couldn't find her, and her family wouldn't let me know where she was. I knew she'd had a little girl, and nobody would tell me where she was, and I, and I spent all my time looking for her, and, and nobody would tell me nothing, you know. And things went on in my life. You know, I, I hooked up with this gal, and she was a rich girl, and she was 15 years old, and she bailed me out of jail three times in one week. And that's... I didn't want to let her out of my life, you know. <laughs> I didn't know too much about love, but boy, that was as close to it as I could ever understand. She woke up a judge at 3 o'clock in the morning to make bail for me, and I said, baby, don't ever leave me, you know. And, uh, and she never has. Kathy's uh, one of my dearest, dearest friends in this world. We, we got married. She told me she was pregnant, so, so we got married, and we moved up to Oregon, a little town, and... Uh, and one beautiful, beautiful day, uh, she presented me with a little boy. It was my son, David. He was born immature, and he only weighed about three and a half pounds. But, uh, you know, I didn't know nothing about love. I'd never known anything about love. I'd known about lust. I'd known about I want this, and I like to do this, and I love to do this. But as far as love with another human being, I didn't know too much about it. But I'll tell you this from my heart to yours, that when they put that little baby in my arms it was the very first time in my love, my life, that I fell head over heels in love with a human being. And I saw that baby and something inside of me happened that had never happened before. And I started making plans, you know, and I, and I started talking, making this baby promises about what kind of daddy I was going to be and the things we were going to do and what kind of man I was going to be. And, and I was sincere from the bottom of my heart. And a couple of years later, this woman gave me a little girl. And it was the same thing, you know, they put that baby in my arms. And one more time, I fell head over heels in love. And I'm kind of alcoholic, you know, and, and I like to, gosh, before I was married, I'd see one of you pretty gals in a meeting. Before the meeting was over, I'd have all our grandkids named, you know. But uh, I looked at this baby, and I knew that someday, she was about 20 minutes old, I started worrying about the guy that was going to come and ask me to marry her someday, you know, and that I better start getting ready and what kind of, what, you know, the conditions are going to be. And, I, and I'm planning out her wedding, and I got this big giant wedding planned on it. My mind's just racing a million miles an hour like it always is. And, and I made this little girl all these promises. And I'll tell you this, for the first seven years of those children's life, I was a real, real good father. I had a lot of money. I had a real nice big home. Uh, I had a place in Mexico and I had a place in San Francisco. We had a real nice house in Southern California. I didn't work. Um, 
I had other ways to make money. And I just, I spent most of my time playing with my kids. And my kids were my life. And on September 7th of 1976, I was playing with my son. And, uh, and I got high. I got loaded. And it was a real hot day, as it does get in September. And uh, I got on my bike and I went to the store to go get something to drink. And I didn't tell anybody I was going. I just jumped on my bike and left. And my son, was I didn't tell you, but he was, he was born deaf. And um, he chased me out to the street. I didn't know about it. I was just tore out of there. And, uh, and when I came back, the police were there and the paramedics. And uh, my son had been run over by a truck. And I waited through that crowd, and I saw my son laying there on the ground, and his brains were out of his head, and, uh, and the bones were protruding. And something inside of me died. I spent the next nine months in hospitals with my son, and he was in a coma. And we went through one major surgery after another. And it was this time I, I had never known anything about God, but I tried to make a deal with God. And I begged God to give me back my son, and I'll do anything in the world if you give me back my son. And uh, he didn't give me back my son exactly the way I wanted him. My son survived, but he had massive brain damage and uh, massive physical problems for the remainder of his life. And every time I looked at my son, I knew what I had done, you know, that I'd take the responsibility to take care of this baby. And I got loaded, and I left. And he was hurt, and it was my fault, and the guilt just killed me. Right after my son had gotten out of the hospital, something happened to my brother. Inside his head, something broke. And he was put inside of a hospital, committed to a hospital, in a, and they got him stabilized on some medication. They told me that he had schizophrenia. And he called me, and he said, get me out of this hospital, Kip. And I... Uh, if my brother would have been in a federal pen and he called me to do that, I would have got him out. That's just the way we were. And I had the money and I got a lawyer and I got conservatorship of my brother and I got him out of that hospital against medical advice and, uh, and I bought him a little trailer and set him up on my property and proceeded to take care of my brother the way I take care of everybody when it's convenient. I had to leave. I had to go to Oklahoma to do some business. And uh, my brother was coming up to me, and he was just nuts, and he was crazy. And he, he, he wouldn't let go of me. And I was going, what's wrong? He says, I don't know, man. I'm coming apart. Something's wrong. And I said, look, brother, just hang tight. I'll be back in three days. Me and you, it's always been me and you. It always will be. I said, here's some money. And I'll be back in three days. Just hang tough. And he cried, and he said, please don't go. And I said, I got to go, man. I love you. And I, and I hugged him, and I said, goodbye. I'll be, I'll be back in three days. And I got back, and this thing I was doing went sideways on me, and I was gone for about a week and a half. And I went back to that, and I looked for my brother, and I couldn't find him. And I went back to that little trailer house, and I opened his door, and his head rolled out. My brother took that money on the third day and bought a gun, and he blew his head off. And uh, he'd been dead for a week and a half, and it wasn't a pretty sight. And one more time, one more big thing of Kip broke inside, real deep. And I do not tell you this for any other reason, because I don't need your sympathy. The only reason I tell you this story is to tell you this, that there are some of us amongst us who got here with grave and emotional mental disorders. And I'm one of those people, because something inside of me broke that day that was never to be repaired. 
And I'll tell you this from my heart to yours, that I thank God for alcohol. And I thank God for narcotics, because if it wouldn't have been for those two things, I would not be here today. Because, see, alcohol was never my problem. Alcohol worked for me real, real good. And if I would have had to feel what was going on inside of me, all the guilt and all the pain, if I would have had to feel that, I did not have the tools to know what to do with it. I would have died. I would have had to have blown my brains out too. But I was real fortunate. Alcohol worked for me real well. You know, they, they talk a lot about bottoms. I heard that story since I got here, and I don't know. I have my own opinion about that. So I've, I've known a few people that hit bottom. I had a guy that I've been working with for a long time. He took a 90-day token one night. The next night, he, he drank himself to death in the back of a van. He hit bottom. And my ex-mother-in-law, she spent the last 10 years of her life in a mental institution with a wet brain. And she died not knowing who she was. And she, she hit bottom. But it's been my experience that every time I would think, this is bottom, this is it. Well, I tell you, I, I found a basement in every one of them, you know. The stuff and the people started going pretty quick. You know, about the end, I was telling Joel earlier, someone out here that this is the way it was towards the end of my marriage. I went down the store to get a pack of cigarettes, and I called her two weeks later. I was 1,800 miles down into Mexico. And she picked up the phone, and she just said, What? And I said, I'm down in Mexico. She goes, so? I said, well, if you don't send me some money, I'll come home. She said, where's the nearest wire office? <laughs> she had that money there within 24 hours. I got a little nervous. <laughs> that marriage ended. She, uh, I ran her off. I ran her off with all that pain and that insanity and that alcohol. She was so scared, she left, and uh, she left my daughter. She was seven months, seven years old. And my daughter, no one takes my kids. She knew that. She knew better than to take my daughter. And she left that little girl with me, and um, I, was, I made that little girl a promise. I said, I'm going to get it together, baby. We got that woman out of our lives now, and, and now I'm, I'm going to get it together. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get a real job. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. And then this fella brought over a big old bottle of Mad Dog 2020. Anybody ever heard of that stuff? Boy, it'll change your life. I drank this bottle of Mad Dog 2020, and uh, the next thing I know, this lady's pushing me on the shoulder. And I said, what? And she, I looked around, and I'm a big old jet airplane, and me and my little girl's huddled up against me, and I'm the only one on the plane. She goes, we've landed, sir. You've got to get off this plane. I said, where am I? She said, you're in Fort Lauderdale. I said, I don't like Fort Lauderdale. She goes, I don't know anything about that. You got to get off the plane. You only got a one-way ticket. I got off that plane. I did what any good and respectable drunk would do, you know. I didn't quite figure out what happened, but I had a bunch of money. So I called a cab. I said, stop at this liquor store. Let me get some liquor and take me to this hotel. And let me sit down and try to figure out what's going on here. And the bottom line is that... Uh, I ended up in a detox, and uh, I didn't know where my daughter was. I found out that I hooked up with some real nice folks, and they took care of my daughter because I went nuts, and they put me in this place. And, uh, and I got out of there, and I, and I went to my first A&A &A meeting, my very, very first one in Florida. 
And they had absolutely nothing I wanted, you know. I walked in, I sat down, and I went, yeah, well, I don't need this. I'm not much of a joiner, and they sound pretty religious to me. So, um, you know, I went to that one meeting, and I, and I didn't go back. I can do this on my own. And the next three years, me and that little girl's life, we lived in um, five different states, about 20 different counties. And by the time she was nine years old, I'd walk into a house in a, wherever we happened to be, and she would look up, and, and she knew we were leaving right then. Then the last time was in Oklahoma City, and I, I came home, and I had blood on my shirt, and it wasn't mine. And I had that look in my eye, and she knew that we had to leave. And she grabbed her doll, and we ran out the back door, and we got on a bus, and I passed out. And uh, I come to in Gallup, New Mexico, and my, my little girl was sitting there rocking, crying. And I said, what's the matter, baby? And she said, Daddy, I'm so hungry. She goes, you haven't fed me. And I said, as soon as we stop, I'll get you something to eat. And, uh, we pulled in this little place, and I got off this, and I went in this little liquor store there, and uh, I picked her up one of them cold sandwiches in the cooler, and I got me a bottle of wine. I was so sick. I was starting to shake real bad, and I needed a drink desperately, and I, and I got that bottle, and I got that sandwich. I got up to go pay for it, and I only had enough money for the bottle or her sandwich. And I had to put her sandwich back. And, uh, and I've done a lot of things in this world that I would never share from the podium and only with a few people. But I've only, I've never done anything in my life that haunted me worse than that. I got back down to California and, and I, I went to go see my mother and I hadn't seen her in a long time. And I thank God for her because she grabbed my little girl and told me to hit the road. And, and for the next three years, I was in and out of institutions. I lived on the side of the road. I lived in the bushes. I panhandled for wine, and I drank myself into oblivion on a daily basis, or into a hospital, or into a nut house, or into a jail. And I was a tongue-chewing, babbling idiot, as my sponsor called me. One day I was in front of this little market. It was on a Sunday morning, and I was sacred and dog, and I needed a drink, and it was real early. And here comes this nice big four-door sedan with this, see this square guy in a square suit and a square little wife and a square little kids. And uh, they got out of the car and I saw him looking at me and I stuck my hand out to this guy and he put $2 in my hand. I don't know if any of your winos, but $2, first thing in the morning, it's just, that's the lotto, you know. I could buy a whole quart that'll keep me well till 2 o'clock in the afternoon. And I went in there and I got my bottle and I saw them folks looking at me and, you know, and I was cussing them because I knew they were judging me. Those people are real good friends of mine today. And I'm not here to talk to you about religion because I don't believe religion has any place to do in Alcoholics Anonymous. But that was a real good Christian family. And they got out of that car as I wandered off to the bushes and that whole family got out of that car and they prayed for that poor drunk. About the time they're praying for me, I'm opening up this bottle. And I had the damnedest thought I'd ever had in my life. I said, maybe, maybe I ought to go to A&A. And you told me that, um, see, I've been in jails, I've been in institutions, I've been to them H&I meetings, and y'all had told me that you would welcome me to, with open arms when I come to AA. I've been living in the side of the road for about three years. 
My hair was down past my waist. My beard was down to my stomach. I weighed about 120 pounds soaking wet. And a lot of things lived on me besides me. I lost the ability to control a few bodily functions, and I didn't really care too much about that. And uh, I walked in this meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous over in Carlsbad, a Friday night meeting. I walked in, and I looked around. And you know what? They looked a lot like you folks. They're all nice and clean and smiling. And I walked in, and these people looked at me, and they kind of put their hands on their nose. I sat down by this gal. She jumped up and moved down. And I'm looking around, and I'm wondering. I wonder if they have a room for the more severe cases, you know. <laughs> you folks did not look like drunks to me, you know. And then right away I knew I was in trouble. You're talking about God, which wanted to make me throw up, you know. And I, Then you start passing a basket. I knew you were going to start singing any minute. I'm getting ready to get my hat. I'm going to get out of here. This ain't for me. I'm real. I knew I was right in the first place about y'all. This thing going to have me, sober me up, have me down to some airplane place selling flowers or something, you know. I'm getting ready to leave, but there had been this one old gal. She kept looking at me from the minute I walked in. Every time she'd catch my eye, she'd smile. Now, as bad as I was, I had a no, no illusion that I had anything this woman wanted, but... uh I thought she was one of them brain-damaged people I'd heard about. <clears throat> she kept smiling at me, and I'm getting ready to go, you know. And just about before I stood up, she hopped up out of her seat, and she named her name, and she said, I'm an alcoholic. And she looked right at me. She goes, I walked in the doors of Alcoholics Anonymous in Santa Monica 27 years ago. She goes, I walked in these rooms, and I peeked in the door, and I looked at all you women, and you all looked so nice and clean, and you were ladies. And I knew I couldn't come in. He says, see, I've been a prostitute all of my adult life and on the streets of Los Angeles. I've done everything a woman ever had to do to survive out there. She goes, and if I knew what you people would do, that you would judge me and turn your back on me like other women always had. And she goes, I started to leave, but someone grabbed me by the arm and brought me in the room and got me a cup of coffee. And they told me to please stay because they needed her. And she told me this. She started talking about the 12 Steps of Alcoholics Anonymous. She started talking about her sponsor. She started talking about her home group and about her commitments and about the changes in her life and the miracle that 27 years had given her and about her career and her family. And she just went on and on. And then she walked right over in front of all them people and she grabbed me up in her arms. She kissed me right on the mouth. And she whispered in my ear, keep coming back here, honey. We need you so bad. I've never seen that woman again. But I started crying. I'll tell you, I just broke apart because there ain't nobody in the world that had touched me in, in many years except for the nightclub. And nobody told me to come back and nobody told me they needed me. And I wanted what you people had so bad if it were a tangible thing, I would have knocked one in the head and taken it, you know. But then I came in here and you people, all of you, you lied to me right from the very beginning, every one of you. You told me if I quit drinking alcohol, my life would get better. I don't know how alcohol does for you folks, but alcohol ain't my problem. I have an acute allergic reaction to sobriety. And alcohol was still working for me, man. I stopped drinking alcohol and all those feelings start happening and all those memories and all that guilt and all that pain and all that stuff.
Now, you also told me I ought to get a sponsor. I've been on parole most of my life. I'm not going to volunteer, you know. I looked at those steps. You said I had to do those steps, and I saw that one thing, that first, that God stuff, you know, and I didn't want nothing to do with God. God never did. I just pissed God off right from the gate. You know, he likes those people who live in the suburbs. He don't like people like me. And uh, I saw this thing where I have to write everything down that I've ever done and tell someone. <laughs> you know, I learned when I was 15 years old in the streets of San Francisco, you don't ever cop to nothing, even if they got pictures, you know. <laughs> Deny it. Demand a jury trial. <laughs> you don't ever tell anybody, especially another man, any kind of weakness. They'll use it against you. You don't ever talk about fear or anything. People will work you on that. You don't ever let your guard down. No one ever won't tell anyone thing like that. I'd have come into these meetings and hear you people talk. I'd be so embarrassed for you people. Jeez, how could you just spill your guts like that from all these people? Man, I learned you just tell people what they want to hear so you can get what you want from them couldn't get it. I couldn't understand it. And I went to meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous on a regular basis for six years. And I could not get sober. And I'll tell you, I don't know how many new people are here. But I will tell you this, the Fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous is a wonderful, wonderful thing. And you can go to all the meetings you want to go to and you can have all the commitments in Alcoholics Anonymous you can do. And you can shake people's hands. You can sit with coffee till 3 o'clock in the morning every single day. But if you are not working and applying the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous to every aspect of your life, you are going to drink again. That has been my experience. You can stay sober on other people's sobriety for a little while. For a little while. But midnight comes, and it's just you. And that's when the demons come. That's when the screaming starts. I come to in uh, the rubber room, butt naked, handcuffed, covered with blood in the rubber room, Christmas morning with my face stuck to the mat by my own blood, with all these cops looking through those little glass portholes, looking down at me, laughing at me. You know what? I had a feeling Santa Claus wasn't coming that day. <laughs> that was Christmas morning in 1983. I found out I got in an argument with a police officer, and as usual, I lost. And uh, they knew me so well down there, no one pressed charges. They just let me go. And I wandered off to this little place I'd had, you know, because I've been going to them meetings, and a lot of things changed in my life by going to meetings, you know. I was able to, to make a little bit of money, get me a little apartment, and clean up the outside a little bit. I called it my own private little insane asylum. Because I'd go to meetings every single day, and I'd stay with you people as long as I could, and then I'd go home and sit there by myself and just go absolutely insane until I'd have to drink. I went to this room and I can't come back. I'm that person in chapter 5 they talk about. I'm not going to get sober. There ain't no doubt about it. I'm tired of being y'all's token drunk at all these meetings. I'm going to do what I do best. I'm going to drink. And I'm going to use. I'm going to do what I do until it stops. You know? 
I went in that room. I took every penny I had. I, I put it all together. I got me about three quarts of tequila and got me some dope. And I sat in there and I started drinking. And I drank that and I went and got some more. And I drank that and I went and got some more. And on January 6th, January 6th was the absolute worst day of my life. And I remember it crystal, crystal clear. But January 6th was the day that alcohol didn't work no more. And I've had women leave me and I've had all kinds of stuff leave me. But when that left me, that broke my heart and it scared me absolutely to death. And alcohol didn't take that pain away no more. It didn't take that loneliness away no more. It didn't take away any of those feelings no more. And it wouldn't work no more. Now, I've been to AA for six years. And AA don't work for me either. And when alcohol stopped working for me, I hit that spot they talk about in a vision for you. And I know what that sentence means from the bottom of my heart. It says there will come a time where you will not be able to imagine life with alcohol or without it. And if you're a drunk like me, it says you come to the jumping off spot. You, you come, come to loneliness like no one else. You know, and at that period of my life, at that moment, if loneliness would have been a tangible thing, it would have absolutely eaten me alive. It would have carried me away and just eaten me up. It says you come to the jumping off spot and you wish for the end. And I know what that means, you know, because I, the thought of living one more day in that pain was so terrifying. The thought of one more hour in this world was so terrifying. I pulled out my gun, I put it to my heart, and I pulled the trigger, and I blew my left lung and two ribs out and knocked me all the way across the room. And there was blood pumping out of my chest. I was sliding down this wall. And the only thought I had was, thank God this nightmare is over with. Just let me out of here. And I come to in this hospital. Y'all thought I died, didn't you? <laughs> nah. Let me back up just a little bit. I was going to these meetings all this time. There was this old guy, a guy named Charlie Tuck. I'll break his anonymity. He's passed on to the big meeting. Old Charlie used to be a, a gangster. He was Al Capone's bodyguard in Chicago. He came up to me in a meeting one time. He says, I've been watching you, kid. He says, you think you're pretty tough, don't you? I looked up at him right here. I gave him my toughest jailhouse look. I said, I'm tough enough, old man. He looked at me and he laughed. He says, you ain't tough. He says, you're the scaredest son of a bitch in this room. Said, that might make you dangerous, but it don't make you tough. And he walked away laughing at me. <laughs> From that point on, every time I went to a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous, I would make sure to wait till y'all got here and I would look in to make sure he wasn't there. <clears throat> I'm laying in that hospital bed. I'm just coming to. I've been out for about three days and they cut me open like a catfish, cleaned me out, and stapled me up. I'm laying there with tubes coming out of every hole in my body and a few new ones I had made. And uh, I hear this voice at the foot of my head. Charlie had a very distinctive, uh, kind of like gravel, just a real deep gravelly voice. And I could hear this voice. And I went, oh, my God. And I opened my eyes. And there's Charlie Tuck standing at the foot of my bed with these two newcomers. And I went, oh, my God. He's got that big old blue ugly book. He's going to start preaching this A&A stuff to me. Oh, my God, anything's sacred, you know. And uh, he didn't say a word to me. He put his arms around these two young fellas. said, you see this guy right here? And they went, yeah. I said, this is what happens 
when you don't work the steps. And he walked out of there. He didn't say nothing. Wouldn't feel sorry for me. Wouldn't do nothing. Obviously, he didn't know how sensitive I was. I might mention those two men that were there are still sober, and they still thank me every time they see me. I was, I was doing active 12-step work long before I got sober, you know. I got out of that hospital, and I, I ain't coming back to AA. I want nothing you all had. I'm not, you know. I'm going to go drink, I'm going to go do whatever it is I do until I die. And I'm going to do it as hard as I possibly can. And believe me, I know how to do it hard. And a good partner of mine had just inherited $7 million. And he called me and he says, come on, man. I got this big house up on the hill and I got the prettiest gals in San Diego. I got the best dope. I got this liquor store you won't believe. I got this Maserati. Come on up here. And I went up there and he's trying to teach me how to make martinis. Sure takes a long time. I was looking for something in a screw cap, you know. Preferably real cheap wine. I love cheap wine. And alcohol didn't work, and you women didn't work, and the dope didn't work, and all the money didn't work. And I was dying and I wanted to die and I wouldn't die. And every single morning I'd wake up and the first thought that would hit my mind was, God, I'm still alive. I'm still alive. And I'd start it all over again. I come to on May 12, 1984, the same way I've come to a thousand times. Come to sick, I come to with this thing screaming, with all these memories, all these thoughts, all these feelings. But I had something weird, man. It was another one of those weird, weird times. Because when I come to that morning, I'd been to so many of these A&A meetings, the only thing I, I, was, I was saying, the ABCs that we read after chapter 5. That's a hell of a thing for a wino to come to thinking about, you know, 5.30 in the morning. And I thought, this is pretty odd. And I started, what does this stuff mean? I know I'm an alcoholic. There's no doubt about that. I mean, I'm not in any type of denial that I'm not an alcoholic. But in the 12 by 12, it talks about it. It says, I can admit it. I can say it as much as I want. But unless I accept that to my innermost self in here where I live, so I started thinking about what that means, alcoholic, powerless over alcohol. And all of a sudden I had a vision. I had a vision and it was, uh, it was the moment that I got on that bus and I looked into my little girl's eyes and I told her that I could not feed her and she could smell that cheap wine on my breath. And then and only then did I totally understand in here where I live when I put alcohol in my body, from that point on, it don't matter about who I love or what I love. It don't matter about my dreams or my plans, and sure as hell don't matter about yours. I got to do whatever alcohol tells me to do, and the only thing it ever says, it says, get me some more, and I'll give up anybody or anything to get it. And I understood that for the very first time. It says, my life's unmanageable. My life's always been unmanageable, you know. I've been scared and terrified of this world from the day I got here. I started thinking about uh, when I was laying in bed when I was a young man, and my brother talking about the kind of man, the ideal kind of man that I wanted to be when I grew up. I had moral and philosophical convictions galore. 
And I got a real, real good look at the man I grew up to be. And it was a far cry from that little boy's dreams. And I remembered and I realized that the way I run my life is an absolute tragedy. And then I got to that last part. And the part that scared me, that you people scared me so bad was, and that was that God stuff. God had never done anything for me. I prayed out to that God when I went to that prison when I was a young boy. I tried out to God many, many times in my life in gunfights and when my brother died when my son was laying there in that hospital and God had never cut me no slack. The things I've done, the things I've seen people do for narcotics and alcohol in my walk through this world, if there was a God, he certainly had a perverse sense of humor and I wanted nothing to do with him. But I put that up aside and I started thinking about the people in Alcoholics Anonymous who had what I wanted. And it wasn't their money, their women, or their cars, or their status in Alcoholics Anonymous. It was the way they carried themselves around these rooms. There was a certain dignity they had and a certain look in their eye. And one thing every one of these people talked about a lot. They all had this one thing in common. They talked about this power. They talked about this power a lot. They did for them what they couldn't do for themselves. When I got down on my knees that morning, it was the most sincere moment of my life, and I said this prayer, and I said, you know, I don't know who you are, and I don't know what you are, and I don't think it makes any difference. From here on in, from here and right now forward, I will do anything that you put in front of me if I do not have to drink any alcohol or use any narcotics. And if you are not there, I'm screwed. And all I know, as long as I've been sober, that I'm... I got to experience God's personal grace that day. Because something happened to me right then and right there that I do not have the vocabulary to tell you. But things changed inside of me. I went to that old man, that old man Charlie, and I knocked on his door and he opened the door and he had that big smile. And I told that man, I said, Charlie, I said, I don't ever want to drink again. Would you please help me? He says, what are you willing to do? I said, absolutely anything. He said, are you done? I said, I pray to God I'm done. He says, come on in, son. He made me a glass of honey and set me down. And he started telling me about him and who he was and where he came from. He shared his experience, strength and hope. And this is what he told me. And this is what I will tell you, you people. He said this, he said, you know, Kip, he says, I've been watching you for a long time. And people like you, you don't, you don't get sober. Very few of you ever get sober in Alcoholics Anonymous. He says, but I'm going to tell you something. I can see, I see something here. And this is the way it has to be for you for the rest of your life, one day at a time. But your sobriety... And the things that you have to do to maintain your sobriety are going to have to be the absolute most important thing in your life. And the day that you ever put a woman, your child, a job, or anything in this world being more important than you doing the things that you have to do to stay sober, that's the day you're going to drink and you're never going to get to get sober again. This is it. Are you willing to do that? And I said, yeah. And that old man took me through those steps rapidly, one at a time. And I finished those first 12 steps my first year of recovery. He got me actively involved in service from 30 days. He was the director of the Hospital Institutional Committee of San Diego. And he got me directly involved in the Hospital Institutional Committee at 30 Days of Sobriety. He made me go to a meeting every single night. 
He made me get a commitment in a men's meeting. He made me get a commitment in a book study. He made me get a commitment in a step study. And the first thing he did, he taught me what the word commitment means. And I'll tell you, I'm sure, I know that man with 38 years knows what commitment means. And I, I know a few other people that know what it means. But a commitment in Alcoholics Anonymous goes like this. As a member of Alcoholics Anonymous, you say you're going to do something. There's only one excuse that you didn't do it. And you died on the way there. You know? He said, you've been using excuses. You've had an excuse for everything all your life. He said, you used them all up, kid. There ain't no more. And I'll tell you how serious he was. He called me up. Someone ratted me out. They'll do that around here, you know. I didn't show up for my, this Friday night meeting. I had a com commitment to make coffee. Boy, he called me up 20 minutes later after the meeting started. He said, how come you're not there making coffee? I said, Charlie, I got the flu. I feel like I'm dying. He said, well, Kip, he says... I said, I got Bob to make the coffee. It's not Bob's commitment, it's yours. He says, you can die on the way to make coffee. You can die while you're making it, or you can die on the way home, but you get your ass over there and make that coffee. <clears throat> and he didn't take good one of those stories about why I couldn't do something, you know. And I am grateful, the bottom of my heart, to that man, because if I could have got one, anyone, to roll over when I snapped my fingers for anything, I wouldn't be sober today. I'm coming up on 90 days. I said, I almost got 90 days. He said, so what? <clears throat> I said, well, I don't have to go to meetings every night. He said, who told you that? <laughs> I said, well, that 90 and 90. I've, been, you know, I've heard all that. He says, you know, when me and you talk, you said you're not like them folks. You're right. You're not. He said, you go to a meeting every single night till I tell you to stop. I got married early in sobriety, and, and at three years sober, he told me I could start taking Thursday night off to go we have one night to be with my wife and on Wednesday he called me up and said you know the, the director for the, the over at the Camp Pendleton Brig just quit and I need you out there on Thursday night so I, I almost got a day off and I went with that old man and he taught me how to live and I went with him when he spoke and I, we went to institutions mostly prisons and I became the director, I became the pastor, the past director, the assistant director, and every other function there is to do in the hospital institutional committee in the last 13 years. I became actively involved in many different programs there, you know. And I got to walk with that old man. And he was, he taught me about God. I'll tell you how about he taught me about God. He was blind in one eye, his right eye. California, I didn't notice around here, but on all the freeways, we've got these little dots right down the center of the road. Those are Charlie dots, but that's how he drives. He keeps one tire on that dot so he can turn around and look at you while he's driving. <laughs> Only man I ever knew that drove by Braille, you know. <laughs> you drive to San Diego with that old man, you believed in God by the time you got there, I'll tell you. <clears throat> I was with Charlie right up to the moment he died. I watched him bury his wife of 53 years. I watched him go through unimaginable grief, and I watched him not drink. I watched him walk through lung cancer, a removal of one surgery, one lung. And I walked with him for another year through incredible pain, and I watched that old man, and you know what? That old man kept his commitments. He, he ran the age. He did everything up until he just pot, couldn't possibly anymore. And we started bringing meetings to him. And I sat with that old man just to an hour before he died. And he looked at me, and he was holding my hand, and he said, Kip, he said, You've come so far. 
And then he quickly corrected himself, but he says, you have so far to go. And, uh, that's the way he always, he'd give me a little pat and a slap, you know. <laughs> and I said, Charlie, I said, you've never lied to me. I know that. And I've tried not to lie to you. And I said, would you please tell me something? He says, what's that? I said, you're going to die here in a little bit. How do you feel? He says, what do you mean? I said, inside here, how do you feel about dying? He looked at me and he had a smile that started deep inside of him and worked its way out. And he put both hands up to the sky. And he looked up and he said, I'm ready. Ah, okay, that's what I want. I want to be ready. And he died. I got another sponsor, you know, and, and I continued to be active in Alcoholics Anonymous. For Ten years of sobriety, I had everything I ever possibly dreamed about having in my whole life. You know, they told me that I had, the first thing they told me I had to do was get an identification in my real name. That was uh, quite a concept. <laughs> Makes you get real honest. He told me that I had to get a job, that I had to pay my way, that I had to get a social security number because I'd never had any of this stuff. I was 36 years old. He told me I had to get a real job and I learned a trade and I did that. I got into the painting industry through a series of real miraculous events. He told me that I had to get a job and, and I said, I don't know how to do nothing. He goes, you know how to pray? I said, yes, sir. He says, get on your knees, tell God you've got to learn a trade, walk out and take the first one he gives you. Got down on my knees and said, God, Charlie tells me i got to learn a trade. I'll take whatever you got. I got up. I lived right behind this honky-tonk. I walked out the street. This pickup rolled up. Guy rolled down his window, the very first car. I said, hey, buddy, you want a job? Scared me to death. You know? <laughs> Absolutely scared me to death. I said, what is it? He goes, it's painting. I said, I don't like to paint. He says, I'll teach you. <laughs> and Charlie made me make a commitment to that man, that word commitment one more time says you're not going to quit for this man you won't give him a reason to fire you you'll do everything he asks you to do you'll show up when he tells you to show up and you'll leave when he tells you to leave he said bottom line you'll never ask him what he's paying you whatever he pays you is more than your work <laughs> cut every corner you know and I, I didn't know this but I found out I had a natural talent for painting and I really liked it I don't know any painters here but boy there's a there's a lot of painters that have real severe drinking problems <laughs> I'd say about 98% of them. And uh, he'd probably be in this industry that is just rampant with alcoholism. You know? And I started this meeting one night because I didn't have a car. And this guy was giving me a ride home one night. And he says, you're that A&A, &A, aren't you? I said, why? And I ain't copping to nothing. You know? And he says, you're always smiling. You're here every morning. I know about you. I know people that know you. He says, you either got brain damage or you're in that A&A. &A. <clears throat> And I said, actually, I got a little of both, but why do you ask? He says, oh, well, you know, I've been to A. I really need to go back. He says, but you know, I just screwed up so many times. I don't want to raise my hand again. It'd be just so embarrassing. I said, really, how long did you do that for? He says, six months. I started laughing at him. I told him about my six years. And I said, Steve, I tell you what, I want you to come over here to my house. I live right behind this little honky-tonk right at the back door, but it's my front door. I said, we'll sit underneath that tree out there and we'll read this big book. And you stay sober for 30 days doing that and you sneak back in these meetings, you won't have to raise your hand, nobody will know. We're always looking for an angle, you know. 
And Steve started doing that, you know, and pretty soon me and Steve were having a little book study at lunchtime out on these tracks we're working on. And people start noticing a change in Steve. Things are happening in his life. And then pretty soon we got another painter. Then we got another one. And I'll tell you today, that's the largest men's meeting in San Diego County. It's called the Vista Men's Hole in the Wall. It's about 200 men strong and one of the most active groups around. I found out that I had a natural talent for painting, you know, and, and I got my contractor's license after a year and a half of working for that man. And I made a lot of money. Doors started opening for me, and, uh, and it, was, it, it was just amazing. Things started happening, and I, had a, I was doing nothing but multi-million dollar homes for uh, about four and a half years. And, and I was making money hand over fist and, uh, and helping a lot of men in recovery, giving people jobs and doing everything. And, and I had married the woman of my dreams, this wonderful, wonderful woman. And uh, she had been got sober on the same day as me, and, and she got her kids, and I got all my kids, and we had six kids, and, and trying to raise these kids and, and stay sober and going to meetings, and we became members of this church, you know. And just everything in my life just happened. At three years sober, that little girl that I was, that was born while I was in prison, I got a phone call. And it was that little girl. She said, I want to get to know you. I want to meet your grandchildren. And she came in and I had a nice home, I had a nice life. I wasn't hiding under some bridge, you know. And I got to be a father to her and get to know her and make amends to her and her mother and take care of that and bring her into my life. And at 10 years sober, I had just done a real gigantic job. I made a lot of money and I went on a vacation that I'd been dreaming about, I'd wanted to do all my life. I went to Australia and I spent two and a half months just going to meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous all over and just looking at the countryside and, uh, and experiencing Australia and I dreamed about doing that all my life and, and I got to, to live that fantasy and it was even better than I thought and, and I came back to California and, and I'm sitting there in my house and I got my boat and all my care, everything and my life is so wonderful and I'm just thinking how the heck did I get here, how did this happen? I was so grateful and I'm reading the paper and I'm reading about where this man broke in this woman's house and took a knife and he sexually assaulted this woman and cut her to pieces right in front of her children. And I got down reading that about an animal and I got down and that was my daughter. That's my daughter's name on the bottom of that page. And I went to that hospital. But I just got back in town and I went in that emergency room, I mean, the, the intensive care, and this man had taken a knife to my daughter and she had lost her breast and most of her face. And he had stabbed her and she lost her left arm. And I will tell you this from the bottom of my heart, that I am absolutely perfectly capable of first-degree murder if you touch anything I love. And I walked out of there and I was absolutely, totally insane. See, I don't know a lot about anger. I know about rage. I know about ice water pumping through my veins and I know about getting real quiet and planning your demise very carefully because I want to get away with it. And that was what was going on with me and things were nuts and I couldn't go to meetings and I couldn't talk and I couldn't sleep and I was so full of anger, so full of rage. And I'm reading this book. I'm looking for a loophole in this book. The only thing I can think of is what my sponsor told me, that absolutely nothing in this world could be more important than me being sober. Not my daughter, not my kid, not nothing in this world. And I'm starting to read this book. He said, it's in the book. Read the damn book over everything I ever said. And I'm reading in that story about resentments and anger, and it tells me this in that book. It says that anger is the dubious luxury of normal people, but not for me.
says for me to live in anger will cut me off the sunlight of the spirit and the insanity will return and I'll drink again and I look real real carefully so I'll save all of you a lot of work there ain't no excuses under that it says that it doesn't say unless someone does something you don't like it says later on in that book I gotta get on my knees I gotta pray for that person to have everything out of life that I want I, what an order I can't do that hardest thing I ever done in my life was get on my knees and pray for that man and I did that I did that every single day for 20 years I got on my knees every single day I prayed for that man to have every life everything out of life that I dreamed of and I got about and I went and I took care of my daughter and my grandkids and I was a father and a grandfather not an executioner and I'm not going to tell you I'm not going to stand up here at this podium and lie to you I'm not going to tell you I forgive this man maybe someday I will but as today I do not but I'm not insane about it and I'm not nuts and I'm not crazy and I'm not planning his demise. I've turned him over to God and he's God's business and one of my prayers every single day is that I hope our paths never cross and I'm not looking for him. And that might not be much but that's a miracle for me if you know who I am. And the insanity went away and I didn't have to drink. I got on the other side of that and they told me that I had cancer. I said, Kip, we're going to have to cut your lips off. I like my lips right where they're at, you know. I like kissing these girls and I just couldn't imagine without them, you know. And, and my sponsor, he says, you know, you got to go to a doctor, get a different opinion. And I went to one doctor, then I went to another one and another one and another one. And I found this plastic surgeon down in San Diego and he did this surgery. And I went through it, you know, and, and, and we got 90% of it, you know. Through a lot of plastic surgery and everything and you can't even tell unless you look real close. And I got on the other side of that, you know, and I didn't have to take any of their dope because I can't do that because, you see, I'm still in emotional pain about my daughter. And he's telling me i got to take pain pills because it's going to be very... But you see, I know me. I know me real well. And if I'm in emotional pain and physical pain at the same time, if I take one thing to mask the other, I'll be off and running because I have no control. And I didn't take any of their medication. I'd been noticing something was going on with my wife. I couldn't put my finger on it, but we started getting distant. We'd been so close for so many years. And I came home and I said, honey, what's up, man? What's up? She said, we've got to talk. And I, I went in, I sat down, I talked to her. And I, she looked at me and she told me this. She goes, Kip, she goes, I love you. She goes, you're the best man I've ever known. She goes, you're the man of my dreams. And if I wanted a man, it would be you. But I can't hide in the closet no more. You see, I'm a lesbian. I'm in love with Chrissy, and, and me and her are leaving. And I can't live this lie no more. And I was not expecting that. <laughs> I didn't know what to say. I didn't know what to react. I was terribly hurt. It affected me. My sexuality it affected everything about me. It scared me. And so what I do what I always do when I'm scared, I attack. And I yelled at her and I called her names and, and, I, and I did a lot of damage. I said a lot of horrible, nasty things to someone I loved. And I got away and I went to go talk to a dear friend of mine, a priest that's been in this program for many, many years. And he was my confessor in my faith. And I went and talked to him about this and, and I just explained to him exactly how I'd been wronged and he sat there and he listened. He's from Ireland, he's got a beautiful brogue. He says, my, he says, you remind me of that guy in the big book. 
I go, what big book? What are you talking about? He goes, oh, you know, that guy. That guy on page 61. He's the other guy that thought he could rest satisfaction if he only managed well in life. And I go, what do you mean? How does that apply to me? He goes, well, you're going on and on and on. You're telling me about everything wonderful you did for this woman, how love and everything you did that was so nice and how she has wronged you so bad. He goes, tell me, did you do all these wonderful things for her because you loved her or because you expected to get something out of it? Were you trying to use all that to control someone? Does she think she owes you something? And I went, no, but he goes, no, blah, blah. He says, listen, you're, I'm your confessor. I know all about you. He goes, son, you are no, no good standing to stand in judgment of another human being's sexuality. Trust me. I said, well, what do I do? He says, you owe this woman an amends. He says, what do you know about love? He said, you loved her. You tell me you loved her. What do you know about love? He said, go write about love. So I had to go back and I had to go write about love. You know, the only thing I know about love is the love that you people gave me unconditionally when I walked in these rooms. That woman came up and kissed me, didn't even know me. The love that my children have given me all my life, unconditional with no reservations. And I said, I love this woman and I had to write about that. And I did love that woman. And it had nothing to do with me had nothing to do with me. And I went back and I made amends to that woman and we divorced very amicably. And she kept my last name. And she, today she's my sister, she's not my wife. And she's my dearest friend. And I talk to her on a regular basis and, uh, and we're very close. And you see, I didn't know you could do that. If a woman does you wrong, man, you kick him to the curb and you go next, you know? I learned that a long time ago from my sponsor. I was sitting there at a meeting and this guy was going on and he's going about, he's going, excuse me ladies, but I'm going to tell you this story. He says, she says, that bitch. My sponsor says, what bitch? He goes, my ex-wife. He goes, you married a bitch? He goes, no, she wasn't a bitch when I married her. He goes, well, what did you do to her? Connie's a, a sober member of Alcoholics Anonymous and she went through her, probably one of the most difficult periods of her life and she didn't have to drink and I didn't have to drink and we're still, both still here and we're both still dear friends and, and that's a miracle and only things like that happen around here. You know, right after that, um, this gentleman came up to me and my little girl that I drug around the country, her name's Jana Marie and she's the sunshine of my life. It was just me and my son, and she came up to me. This man came up to me, and he, he asked me for my daughter's hand in marriage. And he's a real good man. He's also a pilot for American Airlines, and I get to fly for free, but that has nothing to do with him. <laughs> <sighs> and he asked, but you know, he thought enough of me to come and ask me. And my daughter thought enough of me that she said, you've got to go ask my daddy. And I told him the rules for marrying my daughter, that he had to promise to love her and take care of her no matter what she did. And if he ever laid a hand on her, that I'd, he has to dealt with me. And I said, can you do that? And he said, yeah. And I said, okay. And you know, and I still had some credit. And I gave my daughter the kind of wedding, in fact, a little bit better than I dreamed about the day she was born. I make a $200 payment every single month and I probably will the rest of my life. <laughs> and I never regret it. I, I walked her down the aisle and she looked at me and he looked at me. 
and it was exactly the dream that I had. You know, and I'm not telling you, you guys gave that to me. The people of Alcoholics Anonymous gave that to me. That was a gift. That was a miracle. People like me die in institutions on the side of the road, and our names don't even get mentioned in the paper. I walked her down the aisle, and he, he moved my little girl to Texas. <clears throat> it's just me and my son. And my son's the sunshine of my life, and that was all right, you know. And my son, I'd watched him with all his difficulties, his mental difficulties and physical difficulties. I got involved in his life in sobriety. And we got involved in our church, and, and he, was, he was a standing member of Alcoholics Anonymous. They knew him in every meeting around, and he, he was loved and, and cherished in those meetings. And, and people treated him with respect and love everywhere he went. And he, he graduated from high school at the age of 23 years old. And, it, and for him, that was a miracle. That took a lot of work, you know. And he made it to the Special Olympics and, and bowling for the national championships. And, uh, and we made it up there, and he'd been working for that for 10 years. And we got up there, and he bowled one game, and, and he got real sick. And I had to take him right straight from there to the hospital. And uh, I sat with my son for the next four months in that hospital. On October 4th, he died in my arms. And, uh, and it was just me one more time. I did not know. I did not know that a human being could hurt that much. I didn't know it was humanly possible to hurt that much. But I'll tell you this. It was different. The promises it tells us that we'll know how to handle situations before would have baffled us. Life will take on a whole new meaning. It talks about that I will know serenity. And I'm going to tell you my version of serenity because I experienced serenity at this time. Serenity has nothing to do with standing with her or him, watching a beautiful sunset with a pocket full of money and everything going my way. Serenity is for me has been watching the thing I love most in life die and hurting more than I knew he was humanly personable to hurt and at the same time, in my heart of hearts, knowing that this was God's business and God don't make mistakes, and it was nothing personal against me. And knowing that this was God's business. I didn't have to like it, but I knew that I had to accept it and I had no power over it, nor did I wish any. And I got down on my knees right after my son died, and I thanked the God of my understanding for the 10 years that Alcoholics Anonymous gave me to be the kind of father I dreamed about being the day he was born to see my son look at me the way I dreamed about him looking at me the day he was born. And we went on those fishing trips together, and we built that boat together, and we went on those camping trips together, and we did things together on a daily basis, and he loved me, and I loved him with all my heart, and he respected me, and I respected him, and that's all I ever wanted. And you guys gave that to me. And then I got up and I cleaned my son up, and I shaved him, and I got him ready for the coroner, and I had no money. Everything was done. That meeting that I helped start, that hole in the wall, they took up one collection, and with one pass to the hat, that group of men raised $12,000 and gave my son one of the best funerals I've ever been to, and there was over 500 people that showed up. There was 200 motorcycles that gave a parade in front of him. And I got back, and I didn't know what to do. Everything in my life was gone. Everything I'd worked for, everything I thought was so important. So I started, you know, I'd only been to the seventh grade. I said, you know what, I'm gonna go to school. So I went down, I started looking around, something I wanted to do. I went down there and 
and I decided this little course of action that I wanted, and they said, well, that's five years of school. And I said, well, that's too long. I said, I'll give you two years. And she goes, you can't do that in two years. And I said, yeah, maybe not, but I'm going to try. I had some money. I had a little credit and everything else. But up to a lot of people said that they were going to help me. And I went to school and I took 24 units for two, four years, two years straight with no breaks. And I was finishing my bachelor's degree. And they told me that I had to finish high school. And I had to go back and finish high school in the middle of that. And that was the proudest moment of my life when they gave me my high school diploma. It meant more to me. I had no idea. I had no idea. And that was another gift that you guys gave me, you know. And I got a little education. Believe me, it didn't scar me. <laughs> I learned how stupid I was, but I also learned that I could learn. I learned that I could do things that I didn't know I knew how to do. And I became pretty good at some things, you know. And I, you know, and I got into a completely different line of work, more into marketing and industrial psychology, and I, and everything was going all right. And my sponsor, you know, at first the loneliness was so intense, and, and and I was afraid of it. I was scared to death. I kept trying to surround myself with people, and I finally went, you know what? On Christmas, everybody wanted me to come to their house that year, and I didn't want to be around families. I went out to the desert, the Mojave Desert, completely by myself. I crawled up on top of this hill where it was just me. And on Christmas morning, God touched me right in the heart where I live. And it suddenly dawned on me one more gift that you guys would give me. That I don't need another human being to justify me. That I like me. I like my company. I need all you people in my life, but I don't need you in that other way. And I liked me and I liked the way I live. And I started going camping by myself. I started going fishing by myself. I started going to movies by myself. I started renting tuxedos and going to ballets by myself and doing all kinds of stuff I've never done in my life or ever thought I would want to do. But I started doing it with me. I started being real good to me. I started to like my company. You know what my sponsor told me? He said, you can never have a relationship until you don't need one. When you don't need one, then you can have one. You know, and I realized I don't need one. I like me. I like my company. You know, and if someday if God wants to put something in my life, that's fine. But if not, that's okay too. But one particular day, I was really feeling sorry for myself, and I got down on my knees. I said, God, it would be okay with me. I ain't asking for nothing. But it would be okay with me. I would like to experience love one more time in my life. And if it's up to, you know, like I said, it's up to you, whatever. And I let it go. About three months later, I got a phone call. I'd been dating this gal up in Los Angeles, and she'd started drinking again, and, uh, and I just backed away. And I got a call from her mama. It had been about a year. She said, oh, she got in a bad car wreck. She was drunk. She got brain damage. She busted her legs up 18 places. She's just a mess. I went, oh, I'm so sorry. She goes, well, anyway, she goes, you need to come up and get you guys' baby. So what are you talking about? She goes, she didn't tell you? I went, no, what? Tell me what? She goes, you guys, you have a three-month-old daughter. I jumped in my car. I went up there. And they put that little baby in my arms. And I got to experience love one more time in my life. God gave me absolutely exactly what I asked him for. She's 18 months old today. And she is the sunshine of my life.
I'm raising this little girl, and it was just me and her for the first year. And uh, I've been going to meeting with this one woman. Since I got sober, she's a member of my home group. One day, I looked at the way she was looking at my daughter, and I knew that look. You know, what is that special look a woman gives a child? She'd never had any children. And I started looking at this woman in a completely different light. And we got married last, and it is the greatest relationship I've ever had in my life. She is the most wonderful woman I've ever known, the most loving, the most compassionate, the most understanding, the most patient. And on September 7th, if you'll remember that date, I told you about when my son was run over by that car. On September 7th, my wife is going to give me another son. And she started dilating yesterday. And I made a commitment to be at this meeting. And I take my commitments to Alcoholics Anonymous very seriously. My mother said, how can you do this? I said, if I do what I'm told to do in Alcoholics Anonymous, what I'm asked to do. I made a commitment a long time ago. And nothing's more important than what I do over. For with that, I am sober. I would not have this woman. I would not have this baby. I would not have anything that's good in my life today. I want to tell you this, and I'm going to wrap it up. First, I want to thank you all for your Southern hospitality. I love the South. I just love you folks. I want to tell you this for you new people that are here. I don't know what got you here. I doubt if you got here on a winning streak. But I'll tell you this. If you stay in these rooms, you are definitely on a winning streak now. I'll tell you this, that the program of Alcoholics Anonymous is outlined in the first 164 pages. The principles of the will work for anybody, under any circumstances, no matter where you've been or where you haven't been, no matter what you've done or what you haven't done. And I love the theme of this meeting, because only here in these rooms did miracles happen. You know, my life is a miracle, and the miracle was given to me by the God of my understanding and the Fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous and a lot of hard work that I did. Nobody gave it to me, you know. I had to suit up, I had to show up, I had to do exactly what I was told, you know. And I hope you got enough guts to do exactly what you're told around here because sometimes it ain't comfortable, you know. Sometimes it's a lot you're at these places when you don't want to be here, you know. But I don't know why I'm here. I pray to God there's one person out here that needs to hear what I got to say. You know, and that's the person I'm here for. But this program will work for you under any circumstances. And I hope and pray that each and every one of you get to find what I'm And it isn't the stuff it's in And I will tell you one thing that my sponsor says, Kip, he says, if you will live by these principles, if you do, do what I have asked you to do, he says, I will make you a promise that's not enough. And I'm not going to tell you when. Someday you're going to be walking by a mirror. It's going to be about midnight. There ain't going to be no one to impress, just you won't. And you're going to look in the mirror and you're going to see the man looking back that you always dreamed of. And I'm not going to tell you I'm any big deal. But as I stand here before you, I'm the best human being in every aspect of my life as I've ever been in my whole life. And I did not do that. The God of my understanding and you people, the men in these rooms taught me how to be a man. The women in this room taught me how to be a very loving human being. And I thank God for the loving program of Al-Anon. That when I went through all my stuff, I had to go through, I had to go to Alamon meetings because that woman wouldn't do what I wanted her to do, you know? And they taught me a new version of the, uh, of the, the serenity prayer that I always pass around. It says this, it says, God, grant me the serenity 
to accept the people that I cannot change, the courage to change the one I can, the wisdom to know it's me. I'm the only one I can do anything about, you know. God bless you. I'm on a six o'clock flight tomorrow morning, and uh, thank you.